You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 15th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, Rishi Sunak's government suffers its biggest policy defeat at the hands of the UK's Supreme Court. In the light of the evidence which I have summarised, the Court of Appeal concluded that asylum seekers sent to Rwanda would be at real risk of reformant. President Macron finally gets around to visiting one of his neighbouring nations six years into office. I found the crown of France in the gutter. I picked it up with the tip of my sword and placed it atop my own head. No, that wasn't Macron, but another French leader. Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal of Napoleon is being lauded. We'll find out who the pity emperor is up against this awards season. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Well, Rishi Sunak has just got to his feet in the House of Commons to face his weekly Prime Minister's questions grilling after suffering a huge blow this morning at the hands of the UK's Supreme Court, where the justices unanimously ruled against his government's flagship Rwanda immigration policy. Once in Rwanda, people would have been able to claim asylum there, return home or seek asylum in a third country, but not the UK. The policy was designed to deter the tens of thousands of asylum seekers who have increasingly crossed the channel in small boats in recent years. But it has cost millions of pounds without a single person ever having been flown off to Rwanda. Marley Morris, Associate Director for Migration Trade and Communities at the Institute for Public Policy Research, joins us now. Marley, firstly, can I get your reaction to the court's judgment? Well, I mean, this is obviously a a major blow for the government. Uh, It shows that the Supreme Court agreed with the Court of Appeal that um, whilst in principle the idea of um, relocating people to um, third countries uh, for their asylum claims um, to be considered is uh, lawful. The the particular arrangement of sending people to um, Rwanda is not simply because Rwanda's um, asylum system um, is not considered um, sufficiently well-functioning and safe um, to avoid the risk that people will be sent back to to, to countries where they're being persecuted. And and this is obviously a major blow for the government's plans. They're going to have to go back to the drawing board um, to work out what to do next um, to address um, the, the, the small boat crossings. And Lord Reid ruled that there was substantial grounds to believe that genuine refugees sent to Rwanda would be at risk of being returned to the countries from which they'd fled. That was the critical flaw in this policy, it seems. Is there anything the UK government can do now to work with the Rwandan government to change this issue? Well, it's a real challenge for them, um, and it'll be it'll be uh, important to see how the government responds in the, the, the coming days. I think uh, they could try to look at the agreement again um, to see how the Rwandan system could be made more robust, but I think that's likely to take quite a bit of time. One proposal that's been floated is whether UK officials could um, make asylum decisions in Rwanda, um, but we don't know whether the Rwandan government would agree to that. It's quite an unusual um, idea 
idea and, and it's pretty untested, um, both legally and, and practically. So, I mean, at the moment, I think it's very hard to see how, how um, the government is able to resurrect the Rwanda deal in the short term. Uh, and indeed, very hard to see how it can find other deals with other countries, um, just because it's very hard to find countries that are willing um, to do these types of deals and which are considered safe according to, to you know, the UK's legal system. Last night, getting ahead of this decision, uh, which the government wasn't aware of until the rest of us were, but the, the thinking in Whitehall was that they were going to lose. Suella Bravman, who was sacked as Home Secretary on Monday, laid the blame at the foot, uh, the feet of Rishi Sunak, accusing him of having magical thinking that this would get uh, get over the line, that uh, she'd suggested other reforms that could have been put through the House of Commons to fix it. Do you think the blame lies with Rishi Sunak on the failure to deliver this? No, not really. I, I mean, I think um, Suella Braverman's uh, critique is is somewhat off the mark um, because ultimately, and in fact, the Supreme Court was very clear um, about this. Um, the, uh, the the problems, the, the, the legal issues with the Rwanda plan um, go way beyond just whether you can add in a, a notwithstanding clause in, in in the legislation, which is what I think she was proposing. Um, ultimately, um, they uh, breached a core principle of international law, not just from the European Convention on Human Rights, but in other bits of legislation, such as um, the Refugee Convention, um, and uh, embedded into UK primary legislation in a number of places. So this is not a straightforward issue where you could just kind of tweak a bit of law to get out of it. Ultimately, um, you know, the UK, if it was to proceed with this, would be in breach of, of international law. Um, and it's hard to get to get around that, that fundamental fact. There wasn't the money and the resources to send all of those seeking asylum in the UK to Rwanda. Was this always just a high publicity deterrence attempt? Well, I mean, I think... The, the, you know, the reality is that um, the, the, the the government wanted to implement this policy. I think that that's pretty clear. It wanted to do it. Um, it invested lots of money in it and it has been wasted. Um, but uh, in practice, you know, we said even if the government uh, government's plan had been ruled lawful, in, in fact, it would have been extremely challenging um, to, to make it work in practice and very, very costly. So I don't think it was just a symbolic exercise, but it would have been a very costly one if it had been had been deemed lawful. Do you think the government should have spent more of their time and energy perhaps working with European partners to crack down on the gangs that are facilitating uh, this very dangerous crossing? I mean, last year it got up to 45,000 detected people in one year. It is uh, not quite at that level this year. Some saying the weather has to do a lot uh, with that. But would they have been better focusing their attention on Europe rather than trying to send people to Rwanda? Yes, and I think it's fair to say that look, they could have been spending their time doing lots more useful things. To be fair to the government, they have been doing more of this work in the last few months, engaging with European allies on kind of tackling people smuggling. Um, but I think much more needs to be done to work with France and with the EU on how you uh, make arrangements for dealing with asylum claims. Because yes, you can focus all your effort on enforcement and tackling people smugglers, but the reality is very hard to tackle this without dealing with the, the with the reality on the ground, which is that there there are many people um, in northern France who are um, who are um, desperate to come to the UK. Um, their asylum claims need resolving in some way or the other. There needs to be a deal with France, with Europe, um, to ensure that their claims are processed in a fair and reasonable way.
Marley, thank you. That was Marley Morris from the Institute for Public Policy Research. Now here's Laura Kramer with today's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. The World Health Organization says it's extremely worried for patients and staff at Gaza's largest hospital following an overnight raid. Israeli forces entered Al-Shifa Hospital in what the military calls a targeted operation. According to an eyewitness report, soldiers are going room to room and interrogating people. The U.S. President Joe Biden will meet his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping today for the first time in a year. The talks will happen at the Asia-Pacific Economic Corporation in San Francisco, where the two leaders are aiming to ease friction between the superpowers. They're set to discuss Taiwan, the Israel-Hamas war, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, among other topics. And burglars have broken into South Africa Rugby Union headquarters. CCTV footage shows them touching the World Cup trophy before walking away. The incident took place on Monday at an office park in Cape Town's northern suburbs. The trophy is safe, but they walked away with whiskey, signed jerseys, and some laptops. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thank you, Laura. Well, French President Emmanuel Macron has been doing a lot of jet-setting to far-flung international destinations for diplomacy in recent weeks. But today he's visiting a neighbour, arguably those, the people that people and countries regularly end up in the trickiest of disputes with. Macron is on a two-day state visit to Switzerland, hoping to normalise relations after several years of discord. I'm joined now by Bruno Kaufmann, journalist and the Swiss broadcasting company's global democracy correspondent. Bruno, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what caused the breakdown in relations between these two neighbours? There were a set of problems. First, of course, that Switzerland broke the negotiations on a framework treaty with the EU, which uh, Paris didn't like at all about three years ago. Then then also Switzerland didn't bought the military jets from France, the Raffaele, but the American F-35. That was a second sign. And the third big uh, discord issue uh, were and are taxes. Uh, cross-border workers, also people seeing Switzerland as a tax haven. All these issues made Macron very reluctant to go to Switzerland during the last six years. So what are the key issues that Macron is hoping to get worked out on this trip? Now, of course, it's a new uh, a new phase. Uh, everybody talks about the turning uh, page. Uh, Macron launched uh, after the Russian attack on Ukraine, the so-called European political community, a new way of cooperating in Europe. And Switzerland adopted this idea very quickly. And that uh, was a, a reaction which Macron very much liked. And Switzerland is also interested in hosting the second summit uh, of this EPC community in 2025 in Switzerland. And then also the Swiss government uh, launched basically uh, an initiative to start new negotiations with the European Union. And this was also seen as a a great sign by Paris. So there are new possibilities which uh, can make this cooperation between these two countries, which are very interlinked economically, but also people to people, uh, a new start of these negotiations, of these connections are very welcome. And on that tax issue, is that a bit of a non-starter, though, for Switzerland? Because essentially Macron saying that a lot of people that are working in France, their taxes are disappearing back off the border. Yes, this is still a big uh, a problem. But also on this uh, field, there were new contacts. I mean, the Swiss finance minister, Karin Keller-Sutter, and the French 
Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire, they met recently and they started to discuss this. You have to see that there are so many uh, French people going to Switzerland every day, 220,000 commuting. And of course, both countries are interested to find a good solution, which helps because for Switzerland, these workers are very important in the health sector. And on the other side, of course, that makes a problem in the regions affected on the French side. So I see that there are new, uh, a new readiness to discuss these tax issues as well. The EU's Horizon Research programme is of particular interest to Switzerland, but Paris has been holding back on admission. Is there any chance of that being resolved? And what would it mean for Switzerland? Yes, for Switzerland, this is very important because Switzerland in the heart of Europe with all these universities are, of course, dependent of this kind of cooperation. But from a French side and from the European Union side, it has always been said that this cannot be cherry picked. Uh, this is part of the bigger negotiations between Switzerland and the European Union. Union. Now, tomorrow, uh, Emmanuel Macron and uh, the Swiss president, Alain Berset, they will go from Bern to Lausanne to the university and uh, uh, Macron will hold a, a big speech there. And also afterwards, they go to the CERN, this uh, uh, nuclear uh, uh, particle uh, research center in Geneva, which is both on French and, and Swiss soil. And uh, everybody expects that there are some initiatives, some opening to this discussion, but it will be very unlikely that uh, France will be in favor of uh, um, getting uh, Switzerland into the Horizon project without also a bigger step of Switzerland towards the EU. And what is it that President Macron would like Switzerland to do uh, or to agree to in those new talks generally with the EU? It's all about, I mean, having a more stable, uh, uh, a more stable program of cooperation. Because, uh, as I have said before, and as you can see easily on a map, I mean, France and Switzerland are so interconnected. There are so many people from Switzerland living in France and. French people living in Switzerland. Also economically, uh, France is the fifth most important trading partner to Switzerland and Switzerland is the source biggest investor into France. So uh, France would like to see that Switzerland really enters the negotiation for a, a more a ramification treaty between uh, the European Union and Switzerland. So there will be a clear push, but also the promise from the French side that uh, France will support Switzerland in these negotiations in a much more open and positive sense than it was possible in the last three, four years. And the last visit made by a French president was Hollande in 2015. Uh, Macron has been in office for six years and never visited you. How do the Swiss feel about his lack of interest? Yes, I mean, uh, France and Switzerland are uh, very close, but they're also very different. I mean, if you look into the politics and the political system, France is a country with a strong presidency, with a central power. Switzerland is so much decentralized. There's a lot of people power in direct democracy. So there are really two different forms of republics here we're talking about. And in that way, Switzerland always thinks a little bit that France doesn't really respect Switzerland. And on the other side, uh, in France, there are always these feelings that maybe Switzerland doesn't like us as a, as a, as a big central country. So here you have really uh, an opening and a necessity to get into better terms. And I think under current Swiss President Alain Berset, uh, who is uh, ending his, his term in the end of the year, there is a chance that these two gentlemen will make a step into a more positive negotiations and more positive connection between the two countries. 
And there's a perception from some, including former Ambassador François Normand, that it's a minimalistic visit compared to previous French presidential visits. That's right. I mean, you can always see, of course, and compare with like uh, François Mitterrand. He was uh, getting to Switzerland every second year. He liked to do uh, hiking in the mountains. And I mean, uh, this visit now will be just 24 hours and Mr. Macron will not go, for instance, to the economic powerhouse of Zurich or the, the Center of Arts in Basel. So he will only be here in Bern now this afternoon and evening and then tomorrow go to Lausanne and Geneva and then leave again. So you can call it a minimalistic uh, visit, but uh, comparable to all other uh, uh, connections between this uh, president and Switzerland in the last six years, it's, of course, a more maximalistic approach we see here, uh, even if it's not comparable to other presidents before. Bruno Kaufmann, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. A current school of thought is that in order to be successful, a city needs to be fully automated, with citizens' movements, habits and health all recorded, monitored and measured. The expression smart city is often banded about, with authorities far and wide trying to grapple with the technology and the resources needed, and above all, the idea of what it actually means. Emma Nelson has been in the Estonian capital Tallinn, hosting the city's Smart Cities Conference. The day was spent examining how we can benefit from a world of more automation without losing track of the fact that ultimately cities are only as happy as the people who live in them. Tallinn is also the European Green Capital 2023. Its executive director is Krista Campus, and a little earlier in the queue for lunch, Emma asked Krista if this conference had made her reassess what the idea of a smart city is. What is very, very important, and maybe, you know, specifically because I'm Estonian living in Tallinn and everybody probably knows that Tallinn is quite, and Estonia is very like tech-savvy and digital country. And what uh, worries me is that we are maybe missing something here. We became too technology-oriented and then focused on um, digitalization and e-services and kind of forgetting people. So I wanted a little bit also to, to bring uh, focus to people back with this conference. And I, I believe we have managed that. I'm very happy about that. There must somewhere be space to make a workable smart city, which doesn't remove all the data from its citizens and put it into the hands of the few, but at the same time doesn't leave everything to totally street-by-street level. Innovation and smartness can happen locally, and it can be based on local resources and knowledge and expertise. And I think this is very important aspects, actually. Now, when it comes to how we are using uh, the big data, and, and I think that based very much on how much uh, like, uh, people trust government, uh, both when it comes to national level and city level, and also uh, maybe how they are using it. So I think if these two are there, so people feel that they can trust uh, the information they are giving to the government or to the cities, uh, and it is not misused, they are getting back better, more accessible services, then I think that is a win-win situation. We talked also on one of the panels about that relationship between the public and the private sector, that there is that perpetual 
thought that the public sector is always going to look at cost at the bottom line. Do we go for the cheapest option to fix the most immediate problem? And yet, as a result, there is suspicion of a private company which may come in and have a duty to its shareholders and to making profit. Where do you find the middle ground in that? No, I, I think that when it comes to the private sector, then I think they are becoming more and uh, more aware that they are also responsible when it comes to planetary boundaries, when it comes to how to use resources uh, responsibly. And, and also there are more and more, let's say, um, consumers who are actually uh, having different expectations when it comes to companies. So I wouldn't see that so kind of black and white, that more and more companies are actually focusing on how I can reuse, how I can create, I don't know, value from the, from the waste, for example. Now you've been leading the charge, you've been leading Talon's role as European Green Capital 2023. It kicked off in January. How are you doing, Krista? For me, from the very beginning, when we started to prepare for this year and we started to do it already like 2021 after we got that title, the most important thing with this green capital has been that we have to focus on things that are helping to fasten green transition process in the city of Tallinn, number one. Number two, we have to focus on, on let's say, I call them flagship projects, the projects ca- are showing that, let's say, doing things differently is possible. The third objective was also to nudge city organization internally uh, towards more kind of better understanding why do we need, you know, green transition, why climate is important and and everybody should understand it and how they can contribute it. Where have you seen in action things being done differently and actually happening? We actually collaborated with Estonian Song and Dance Festival NGO and, and we, uh, we asked them if it is possible to uh, completely, uh, let's say, uh, skip uh, single-use cups and, and dishes and utensils. Initially they said it is impossible, you know, it, we have around 200,000, you know, visitors. So how you provide like uh, food, both for singers and dancers and also then the guests of, of that event. But then they said that you know, maybe we can do it. Let's, let's, let's think about it. Let's collaborate. And it happened. So we had the biggest pilot ever uh, with the biggest number of participants. So basically no single used cups and, and dish and utensils uh, was used. Valencia takes over next year. You have one piece of advice for them. Even get a bit more sleep beforehand. What would it be? My um, advice would be don't focus on what is easy. Focus on what is uh, challenging and hard. This example I gave you uh, related to Song and Dance Festival, that wasn't easy because there was also a lot of complaints also from the people. That, oh, you know, it's, it will be too expensive for us and, you know, it's too complicated. But after we did it, Everyone was very happy. Getting the city organization behind of, of this project also hasn't been a very easy thing initially, but now I see. Krista Campus there speaking to Monocle's Emma Nelson at the Smart Cities Convention in Tallinn. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. 
Well, I'm pleased to say I'm joined in the studio now by film critic and Monocle radio regular Karen Krasanovich. Karen, thank you very much for joining us. And we're going to look ahead to the Oscar race because some of the films in contention are already out in cinemas. What's caught your eye? Oh, gosh. Well, I just want Monocle listeners to be ready for March the 10th, which is when the, the Oscars start. And then you'll see these list of films and you'll think... I didn't see that. I didn't see that. I don't have an opinion. I want you to have an opinion. So we're going to focus on Best Picture. Now, Napoleon has just come out, just just come out, well, yesterday was the, was the first screening. Um, that is definitely up for Best Picture. And don't forget that that is a producer's award. Um, Oppenheimer, hopefully you've seen that already. Yep. Barbie. American yep. Fiction. Cord Jefferson, uh, primetime Emmy winner. That's going to be out on February the 2nd. Make sure you see that. Okay. Maestro, coming out on Netflix the 1st of December. Bradley Cooper in that one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Pillars of the Flower Moon, Do Not Be Afraid of 3.5 Running Time. It's wonderful. Uh, so it's not another Irishman situation where it really drags. No, it really isn't. Okay, no, that's no. good. And yeah, I had people looking at looking a stink eye for taking taking them to the Irishman, yes. Um, <laughs> May, December, which is Todd Haynes. Not, that's uh, coming out this week. That's Natalie Portman and yes. Julianne Moore. Right? Yes, and yep. we think Julianne Moore is going to be Best Supporting Nominee for okay. that. Okay. And definitely The Holdovers. Uh, and I, I forgot to look up when that's released, but that is an Alexander Payne movie, and it is absolutely winning. Also, there we're looking at a Best Supporting Actress nomination uh, for Devoin Joy Randolph. You'll know her from Only Murders in the Building. Okay, an absolutely cracking show. Another one on your list there, I've just seen Past Lives by Celine Song. Mm-hmm. I really love that film. It's- Do you think that has any momentum behind it? I think it's been very popular. It's been around a while on the festival circuit. It's got a lot of accolades, and people love her. Uh, she doesn't have any Oscar history, but that doesn't mean anything. And so she definitely has a shot at at least Best Picture and maybe maybe uh, Screenplay. Mm. I think it really resonates because it's about two lovers who, or, or they were friends, sort of starting to feel feelings for each other as children. She's then moved to Canada and then America. They reconnect over Skype in 2012 and then in the modern day. It kind of feels very timely post-pandemic of people maybe having reached out, thought back in their lives a bit. And also it's, it's South Korean and New York, so there's an international feel to it. Mm. Yeah, it definitely does. The problem The problem is, is that it is a, it is a critical darling but Hollywood is very much is very much um, industry town and so whether it's going to get uh, it, the same critical plot it's, it's hard to say yeah and I mean industry movie. Napoleon. It is big spectacle. You've got these powerhouse performances from Joaquin Phoenix as this huge historical, well, tiny but huge historical <laughs> figure. Um, you've got these huge action sex pieces. It sort of reminds me of the trailer looks like it's gladiator for kind of the modern day. Um, were you blown away by it? All the reviews seem pretty strong. Well, you know that Kubrick, so many people were trying to make this film. Um, Charlie Chaplin, Peter Jackson, Stanley Kubrick all met their Waterloo with this story. So <laughs> Uh, the fact that that uh, Ridley Scott got Kubrick's script, said, nah, it's too long, and did his own, it's absolutely stunning. The fight sequences are incredible, uh, and I think it's it's 2.5 hours, so... And Vanessa Kirby might be up for be- for Best Actress nomination as well. If you like, if you're histor- it's not historically accurate, so don't go in thinking it's a documentary. Mm. It's not. It never really works when they are. No. But you know, she's most known for her performance as um, Princess Margaret on The Crown. Does she get a lot to do in this as well? She has. Yes, she's 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 gifted with a quite a good role. But don't forget, she was Oscar nominated for Pieces of a Woman as mm. well, which is a film that was she was brilliant in, and not many people saw. Yeah, um, and just. Turn 
returning to back to the summer's sort of, you know, saviour of cinema, essentially, <laughs> Barbenheimer, the accidental scheduling of two very different movies. Was it an accident? Oh, uh, well, we'll see. But um, on Oppenheimer first, I mean, Christopher Nolan's got to be a pretty strong shoe-in for a lead actor Oscar. Yeah, well, for, for yes, for, for best director. But oh, sorry, I think, but, um, yes. Killian yeah. Murphy Killian for the Murphy. actor, yeah. Yes, absolutely, but... Best supporting actor. You see, the interesting horse races are in the supporting ones because um, is Robert Downey Jr. going to get it for that? Wow, I didn't even know he was in it. It was amazing. Mm. He's been nominated twice, one for Tropic Thunder, which they're trying to forget. Oh, yes, for obvious reasons. In 1993 yeah. for Chaplin. This might be his opportunity. And do you think Emily Blunt had quite a good performance in that movie as well as the wife of Oppenheimer? Do you think any contention there? I I think maybe a nod there, but it's not, even though it's a pivotal role and she did very well in it, I don't think it's as stellar or as memorable. Yeah. And just finally, very quickly, Barbie, I mean, is Ryan Gosling pretty (laughs) much in for a nomination? I think so. I think I'd put my money on him and I hate to say it because it is a very strong category, but uh, he's wonderful. He's delightful. And, you know, he... The Academy likes him an awful lot. And also, he's been nommed twice for La La Land and Half Nelson. Mm. There is a bit of an irony, though, in a movie that's centered on a woman if he's the one that uh, picks up the award. But uh, Karen Krasanovich, thank you very much. That's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock. And our studio manager was Tamsin Howard, with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye, and thank you for listening. 